Today's scripture reading is Romans 8, 31 through 39. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in your bulletin or on the screen behind me. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Said he is risen. He is risen indeed. One more time. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen indeed. And this is the Christian's rally cry. Amen. amen. Uh, this is why we're here and excited this morning. This is why we're rowdy and a bit turned up because we know that the grave is empty, that Jesus has defeated death. Pastor Timothy Keller has this to say about the resurrection. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teachings, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And as Christians, we gather here this morning excited because the tomb is empty, because there's nobody to be found. And this truth informs what we believe, how we relate to God, and how we live our lives in this world. But if I could be honest with you this morning, this truth doesn't always translate into us living it out. As Christians, we still live with fear, anxiety, guilt, shame. We still wrestle with our purpose in life, with truth, with where we're headed, and even at times with what we believe. Are we good enough? And is God's love for us really as strong as he says? And that's why I love Romans chapter 8, the the chapter that we're kind of camping out in. It is one of my favorite chapters. In fact, if I was stranded on an island with one chapter in the Bible to hold on to for the rest of my life, it would probably be Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul is showing us some some gospel truths that should be like an earthquake in our soul, some gospel truths that we can hold on to to be reminded, whether in feast or in famine, what God thinks about us. 
And these gospel truths are available as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because the tomb was empty and is empty. Andrew Murray once said, a dead Christ I must do everything for, but a living Christ does everything for me. And in Romans chapter 8, we see three great truths in verses 31 through 39 that Christ has done for us. Three great truths that remind us that Christianity is not primarily about what we do or what we get done, but it's about what Christ accomplished for us on the cross and through his resurrection. And now what he does for us. So let's bathe in these earthquaking uh, life transformative, simple, yet magnificently beautiful truths. The first truth that I want you to hold on to this resurrecting Sunday. First truth I want you to hear this resurrecting Sunday if you have never held on to these truths. If you're here just, just spectating, just watching with a friend, but you don't believe in Jesus Christ. Here's, here's what I want you to see. Here's why we're so excited. Here's why we're shouting, he is risen. The first truth is this. Paul tells us and puts before us the unfailing favor of God, the fact that God is for us. Paul writes in verse 31, what then shall, I, shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What are these things that the apostle Paul are pointing us to? These things refer to the truths that Paul has set forth throughout this letter, but especially the comments that he's made here in chapter 8 about the life the Father has made available to us through his Spirit, and how through his Spirit we are empowered to live lives that are countercultural. We are empowered to live the good life or the abundant life as Jesus speaks about. And at this point, Paul is going to raise five significant questions along with minor questions to support these questions in order for us to see these important truths. And the first major question that he asks is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, normally, now see how he, how he puts that phrase in there. He says, if God is for us, or since God is for us, who can be against us? I'm glad that he just didn't ask the question, who can be against us? Because the truth is, if that's what he asks, we all can say, well, I know some people that can be against me. Some people at my job, some family members, I know Satan is against me. And quite honestly, sometimes I'm against myself. But that's not what Paul asks. He says, if God is for you, in other words, since God is for you, does it really matter who's against you? Because you have now divine favor on your side. You know, my tendency is for me to not believe that God is for me. My tendency when my dreams or plans or, or personal projects fail is to doubt whether or not he is for me. And that's probably your tendency too. And some of you this morning sit here with, with a weight on your shoulder and you, you know that you've given your life to Jesus, but you, you're wondering, is he really for me? And according to this text and what the Bible teaches that if you have been redeemed by Jesus, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, that he is definitely for you. Now, being for you does not mean that he is for your big plans necessarily. 
It is not a promise that he is for exactly what you want. Being for you means that he is for your good and his glory. Being for you means that he is committed to making sure that you grow in sanctification or Christ's likeness and you are being transformed or conformed to the image of Christ. Being for you means that he has set an unbreakable chain in motion that those who are justified are those who will be sanctified and, and one day glorified. Being for you means that he sees you and he knows you and he is available to you and for you when you need him. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way because our circumstances can drown out these truths. So what do we go to when we feel that God is not for us? What we must go to is this next section of this verse that Paul points us to, and it's the generosity of God. He says, how do we know that God is for us? He did not spare, but gave up his own son. Listen, the strongest proof of God's favor towards us is not our dreams being fulfilled, but it's what he gave up for us. He goes on and he writes, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Paul says, listen, God is for you. Who can be against you? How do you know that he's for you? He's generous. And how is his generosity seen? He gave up his own son for us all. For us all. One of my favorite cars is Lamborghini. To be specific, it's the Lamborghini Hurricane. That bad boy goes from zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. I pray nobody ever leaves the, the key in the ignition in the open door because I might test out that theory and see if it really goes that fast. But imagine that you entered into a random raffle and you came up the winner of this raffle and the gift is a Lamborghini Hurricane that goes 3.2 and 3.2 60 miles per hour. Imagine that this is what you, you win and you show up to the dealer and the dealer says, this is all yours. We've paid everything for it, including the taxes. And just as you are about to get in the car, you reach out your hands for the keys. And then the dealer says, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you the keys. And you say, well, what a, wait a minute. You said that this is a gift for me, but I, don't, I can't have the keys. He says, you're going to have to find another way to drive it. You'll say, that's ridiculous, that's foolish. That's the same thing that Paul is saying. God has given us the very best gift that he has, the very best gift that, that could be given. He has placed his divine favor on us by giving us his son. And if he is willing to give us his very best, he says, won't he give you all things? And what is he talking about all things? He's saying in your Christian life. Won't he give you what you need to persevere to the end? Won't he give you what you need to have a peace that passeth all understanding? Won't he give you what you need when you find yourselves in the depths of despair? In fact, we read these words in 1 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So Peter points to God's divine power and he says, through his divine power, 
The same power that raised Christ from the dead, we have been given all things, everything we need pertaining to life and living a godly life. That's through the resurrecting power of Jesus. He said, I gave you my son and I'm going to give you everything you need. Part of the reason we don't believe or we struggle to believe that God is for us Part of the reason we struggle with his divine favor is that sometimes it feels like we don't have what we need in this life. And what we need to remember is that our circumstances should not be what dictates whether or not God is favorable towards us. And what we need is not a different roommate. What we need is not a better job. What we need is not more money to be godly. What we need is God himself and his resurrecting power and to believe that he looks at us favorably even when things seem to be falling apart. And this is what the resurrection ensures for us. The second thing we see in this text is is not only do we see unfailing favor that God is for us, But the second earthquaking truth that we see is unending advocacy, that God defends us. Verse 33, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns no one? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. So Paul raises two more major questions. Who's going to bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? And then who is the one to condemn? And we see condemnation is a big theme in Romans chapter 8. Condemnation is a weight for every Christian. In fact, in chapter 7, Paul is reflecting on the Christian life. And he says, the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. And he talks about the Christian life as, as being almost a death, of, as, as carrying a, a weight. And then he asks the question, who's going to deliver me from this death? The word picture that Paul is probably thinking of as he writes those words at the end of chapter 7 is, is a picture of a, a Roman criminal, a, a, a criminal who has probably murdered someone. And this criminal has murdered someone, and in rare cases in Rome, when someone would murder someone, the sentence of that criminal would be that the person that they murdered would then be chained on their back. And now this person has to carry around this dead corpse. And the way that this person would end up dying is that the weight of this dead corpse and carrying around this dead corpse would slowly kill the person who killed them. And Paul is saying that that when we don't believe the gospel, when we don't hold on to the gospel, when we're not looking to Christ as our vindicator, to Christ as our advocate, to Christ as our defense eternity, that our old sins and our old patterns and our old habits become a weight that kill us slowly. And you know this to be true. Condemnation can weigh you down. The condemnation of Satan can weigh you down. The Bible says that he is an accuser of the brethren. The condemnation of of people can weigh you down. The words that people have said to you throughout your life, whether it's a a parent or a a coach or a a friend, in the heat of the moment, they say condemning words that, that when you fail and when you fall, now echo in your mind and you feel like you have a dead corpse that comes up. Your own words against yourself, your own self-talk against yourself can, can weigh you down. Well, the truth of Romans chapter 8, which is given to us through the power of the resurrection, 
conclusion is this, that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That when Satan accuses you, when that person accuses you, one of the most transforming uh, negative things in my life was words that a coach said to me as I was exiting a game because of an injury. He spoke some really uh, discouraging words to me for the next 10, of my, 10 years of my life that echoed in my head every big moment of my life before marriage, when I had a kid, before big speaking assignments, I would hear his voice. And I never forget one day when the Lord taught me how to preach the gospel to myself and says, you are not condemned. That is not your reality. What that person said is not the final word. What matters is what I say over you. You are not guilty. And Paul is saying Jesus is our advocate. He is our intercessor. That's why he says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. That parent, your own voice is not what condemns you. But look at Easter right here in the middle of this verse. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, verse 34, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for you. There is no condemnation because you have a resurrected defense attorney. You have one who has died in your place and he is interceding on your behalf. So when friends tell you that there's no way that you're a Christian because they know the things that you used to do, May you see Jesus interceding and saying, not guilty. When your conscience says, if only these people knew what I've done or the things that I've thought, they wouldn't dare allow me to be a member of this church. You can see Jesus standing up in the courtroom of God's throne with his nail-pierced hands saying, not guilty. But here's what's even more fascinating. That it's not only Jesus that's interceding for you, but it's the Holy Spirit as well. In verse 26 of Romans 8, we read these words, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. This is amazing, an amazing picture. As Christians, we believe in a doctrine called the Trinity. It's a mysterious gospel, it's a doctrine, it's a glorious doctrine. But the doctrine, in essence, teaches throughout the Bible that there is one God that God is three persons, and that each person is fully God. But what Paul throws down here in Romans 8, he says this, that interceding on your behalf when you're suffering, interceding on your behalf when you're struggling to believe these truths is two persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, number one. He is praying for you when you don't know what to pray. You ever been there? You ever been in a place where you're so confused, so downtrodden, you don't know what to pray? You don't know whether to pray for your enemies or pray that God would get them. You're just like all in confused. And you're like, Lord, get I know I shouldn't pray for that. You say, love them, right? Impecatory, psalm or forgive. I don't know. The Bible says when you don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit is praying for you, pleading before the Father. But listen, he's not alone. The Bible says that Jesus is interceding for you. And here's what's even more amazing. As they intercede for you, they're not interceding to a Father that's out to get you. They're not interceding to a Father that's saying, you know what, I can't stand Jamal. He's really done it this time. And it's like they're just trying to convince him to have mercy on you. No, they're interceding to a Father who set this unbreakable chain of salvation in motion. 
They're interceding to a father who before the foundation of the world said, I'm going to set my affection on them. I'm going to draw them to me. They're interceding to a father who sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. Though he who knew no sin, he became sin that we might be the righteousness of God. They're interceding to a father who is crazy about you. Listen, the case is rigged. It's already set in motion. God is saying, I defend you. When your conscience is saying guilty, I say not guilty. When people turn their back on you, I say not guilty. Even when you sin and have done wrong, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Christ is your defender, Paul says. And it is secured through a resurrected Savior. Third truth in this text is not only do we have unfailing favor, God is for us. Not only do we have an unending advocate, God defends us, but y'all, we have unconditional love. This is why we go crazy and say he is risen. This is why we pack out a church on Sunday morning and say, no, I may miss the Sunday before and after, but I ain't going to miss Easter (laughs) because this is what I, I anchor my hope in. This is why we have been loved with an unconditional love, with an earth-shaking love, with a magnificent love, with a beautiful love, with a persevering love. Verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul asks another question. These questions are meant to make the person reading reflect. Huh, who can separate me from his love? Shall trouble or hardship? Shall daily uh, uh, trials separate me? or persecution. Paul's writing in the first century where Christians were being persecuted. At some points in in Rome, uh, we see that Christians was fed to lions. Their skin was shaved off and used as as lampsheds, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword as it is written, for your sake we face death all along. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul asks another question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, he says. In essence, he's saying, am I suffering because Christ doesn't love me? And in my suffering, will Christ abandon me? And his answer is no. Now, here's what's encouraging about this text is that Paul is a man who experienced all the things that I just said. He experienced hardship. He uh, writes the majority of his letters in the New Testament from from jail cells where he is chained to Roman centurions. He has all the reason in the world to not believe that God loves him after how hard his life has been since he's come to faith in Christ. But he concludes that my suffering, that my trials that my hunger is not a sentence against me. No, God defends me. In fact, that me suffering is the the Christian reality for those who have placed their faith and trust in Christ in many ways. Von Hugel writes this, if we are Christians, there's always two notes, suffering and joy. Gethsemane is awful, but it does not end with Gethsemane. There is a resurrection. (laughs) Gethsemane is where Christ spent 
uh, one uh, a significant amount of time just before he was betrayed praying. He's saying our times of suffering is awful, but there is a resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we don't suffer necessarily because we have sinned. The resurrection of Jesus also reminds us that death, that the cross, that the tomb does not have the final word, that the truth buried will always rise again. And here's God's word to you this evening as you suffer. His word to you is, as you're at the tomb, remember that it doesn't end at the tomb. A resurrection will come. That God resurrects those he loved. Verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Quite literally, this word more than conquerors means super conquerors. We are super conquerors as a result of God's love. And then Paul just loses. I just imagine Paul is writing this letter and he's getting into it. And then all of a sudden in verse 38, he just goes off and he starts worshiping. Listen to what he says. He moves from third person to first, for I am convinced. (laughs) Chained, put away, unable to move freely. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the the present nor the future, nor any powers. He's just going crazy. Neither heights nor depths, uh, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And this is how we have the great song, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. (laughs) Ain't No Valley Low Enough to Keep Me From You, Baby. Somebody read this and they was like, oh, that's going to make a good song. They stole it from Paul. I don't know who wrote it. I don't know the history of that song, but maybe. I mean, that's what Paul is saying. I'm convinced that nothing, and he just goes off, anything he can think of, nothing, no demonic powers, nothing, no one's words, nothing, not even my own sin, nothing will separate me from the Father's love. And this is what the resurrection is about, security in Christ. That we are deeply loved, deeply loved. Disappointment, disease, broken romances, financial crisis, nothing can separate us. And when we meditate on God's love and allow it to massage our hearts, that we can, through the power of Jesus Christ, overcome. We can overcome addiction and anger and fear and shame. Not because we can do it in our own strength, but we can do it through Christ who gives us the strength. As Jesus said, without me, John 15, 5, you can do nothing. But when we realize that we are loved perfectly, fear, shame, guilt, anger can be defeated. Now, this isn't just a simple rah-rah speech, no. This text is here to point us to our Savior and to remind us what he has done for us, that he is for us, that he defends us, and that he loves us. We started out with a quote by Tim Keller. second part of that quote says, the issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. And the question this morning before you is, do you, Believe that he rose from the dead. 
As a Christian, we shout yes and amen. And though we struggle to believe this in day-to-day life, when we put these truths into practice, they powerfully begin to transform us and they progressively move us down the road of loving God. And I want to encourage you, Christian, I want to encourage you this week, this month, to meditate on these verses, verses 31 through 39, and to cry out to God, God, help me to believe that you are for me. Though my life is, is struggling with, with toils and temptations and my dreams seem, seem to be falling apart, remind me that you love me. Help me to believe that you defend me. Remind me that there is absolutely no zip, nada. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Help me to live with that freedom and to put to death the voice of Satan, my own voice, and the voice of those who've hurt me. Help me, Lord to be reminded that you love me unconditionally and that when I sin or make a mistake, you're not in heaven saying, I wish I never saved them, but you're saying, for this reason, Christ came to save sinners. And you can say, of whom I am foremost, but praise God for Jesus, my mediator. But if you're not in Christ today, you say, I want this. I need God to be for me. I need him to defend me. I want him to to love me. What do I do? I want to point you to Mark chapter 9, verse 24. A sincere prayer by a man who was in a similar situation. And it says, immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Your invitation today is to take the words that I, I said and to allow your heart to be moved, your affections to be moved towards Christ and say, Lord, I believe, I want to believe. Help the areas of my life where I don't. Help my heart where it is numb. Give me life the Bible says if you confess with your heart and believe in, with your confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Christ has been risen from the dead that you shall be saved is not a perfect belief but it is a sincere belief he will save you this is our hope this is the truths these are the truths that I will take on a deserted island with me and try to meditate on for the rest of my life. This is earth-shaking, magnificent, and beautiful. Lord, help my unbelief. Every Sunday when we gather together, we eat a meal that reminds us of our security in Christ, reminds us that we don't have to carry dead weight around because we've been forgiven and made right with God. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples. He then took bread, gave thanks, and blessed it, said, this is my body broken for you. In the same way, he took a cup and says, this cup is the new covenant of my blood shed for you. Christian, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Here at Sojourn, we take a piece of bread, we dip it in wine or juice. The wine is marked by twine, whatever your conscience permits. We don't take this big of a piece, a little smaller, (laughs) especially on Easter Sunday. If you're not a Christian, we uh, want to invite you not to take this meal, but seriously to, to take Christ, to take Christ. Listen, you weren't meant to live for yourself. You weren't meant 
to, to write the blueprint and the plan for your life. You're not big enough. You're not wise enough. Christ has a plan for your life, and he is calling you to surrender to his lordship so that you can find true life. And today I urge you to give your life to Jesus, to talk to someone about what it means to follow him. I'll be up front after the service. I would love to point you towards Christ and to help you on your journey. But don't take this meal at this time. Those of you who are front half of the room, come to the front for communion. Back half of the room, you go to the back. Gluten-free communion is over to my left. Let's pray.